When I got busy, I got better. I've heard this as an encouragement to service and recovery. What is service and how can it support my recovery? Welcome to episode 349 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Debbie, Allison, Mary, Scott, David, and Sandra. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Debbie, Allison, Mary, Scott, David, and Sandra for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer and I'm your host. Joining me today is Esther. Welcome, Esther. Thank you, Spencer. Good to be here. The other side of the world. The other side of the world from each other. So we're not going to say who's on the other side of the world. It's all relative. That's what Einstein told us. And you uh, selected a reading for us to, to open with. I did. I picked September 7 from Courage to Change. I'll read it and then I'll talk about what I feel resonated with me in this reading. I never thought much about Tradition 7, which says that every group ought to be fully self-supporting. I thought it referred only to paying the rent. But recently I was involved with a group that maintained itself financially and still was not fully self-supporting because no one would commit to service. I already held several positions and when my various terms expired, No one was willing to take my place. I made what felt like the responsible choice for myself and stepped down anyway. The meeting closed. In my opinion, a group that cannot fill its service positions is not fully self-supporting. Today, in other more flourishing groups, I have a greater appreciation of my responsibility to this tradition. I believe that as we nurture our groups, we nurture and empower ourselves. We can make a contribution we can make choices that help us to allow healing in ourselves and others. And I really relate to this reading because um, I recently chaired a business meeting where the group conscience decided unanimously to shut down the meeting. And it was, so it sounds dramatic when I describe it in that way, but really what it was a transition back from Zoom to -to face-to-face. The face-to-face group had already resumed, but we were keeping an online meeting going in parallel, number one, as as a sort of option for people who wanted to keep coming but weren't living close to that location, but also because we thought, uh, maybe we just see how things go a bit slowly, don't just shut things down straight away. But yeah, the group numbers online dwindled, and I was fairly sure that most of the core members had actually gone back to the face-to-face meeting at this point. And I already have a service position that's quite, I'm not going to say demanding because that sounds negative, but it takes a fair bit amount of time and commitment in another group. So I thought if it ends up being the case that we become an autonomous online group, then there could be a situation where people might assume that I'm a person who would take a service position because I was one of the quote-unquote original members of the in-person group that had gone to this online meeting. And I thought that would be actually probably not a wise thing for me to do. I don't think I can take on another significant service position in a second group, even if I attend it regularly. And uh, it just felt right. And 
the group felt that in agreement that there's so many online meetings going on that pe- people can fr- choose from now around the world. So it's not as if by taking this particular one down, we're depriving people of meeting options. So there was that kind of thought. And then the other thought was those who wanted the meeting at this time actually came from that in-person meeting. So again, it's it's not depriving anybody of anything and nobody felt particularly, I guess, tied to or married to this particular online meeting. So yeah, it was a sort of, in a way it was a surprise. And I think I my initial response was to feel a little bit sad because I was quite invested in in this meeting being online and we had occasional drop-ins from overseas and um, interstate and things like that. And I felt a little bit regretful that I wouldn't be seeing them on, on the screen anymore. But I was able to think of both Tradition 7 as it comes up in this reading, which is like self-supporting. If there's only one or two people willing to put in a service, that's not really self-supporting. And then I also thought of Tradition 1, which was the common welfare. And I think the common welfare of the group for me was a really major part of this decision. Like it's not about me and my feelings. The group needs to exist for everybody. And the the reason for its existence is personal progress for the greatest number. And I felt like that ex- that sort of decision that we came to, while it was a bit of a, oh, it's the end of an era, at the end of the day, it was the thing that, you know, would be our, for our common welfare. So I think that was a really, that reading really brought that up for me and, and made me feel encouraged to move forward with that decision and that it was the right thing for us to do and that we came to it in the right way. So that was that. Was that. And then I also really like the part of the reading that says that I believe that as we nurture our groups, we nurture and empower ourselves. We can make a contribution. We can make choices that help us to allow healing in ourselves and others. I think that that is true. Like by nurturing the group, I'm actually also nurturing and empowering myself. At the end of the session, I felt that we had all, we'd, we'd practiced our program in that particular group conscience really nicely. It was the ultimate example of cooperation and thinking of the group as a whole and not of each of our egos or individual wants and needs. I thought that reading's nice for that reason as well when it comes to service. How about you? Well, funny thing, we had a a transition in one of my meetings where the person who had at the beginning of the shutdown of in-person meetings had created a Zoom account and was hosting, I think, four different meetings on his Zoom account throughout the week. He decided that he was going to move to a different meeting at the same time as this meeting that I attend. He gave us a couple of weeks. So we've been having several group conscious meetings to decide what to do, how to proceed. We do have a path forward. A couple members of the group spent a fair amount of time you know, working out a plan. And what they came up with is that in order for the meeting to continue without being reliant on a single person, that we would have our own Zoom account for the meeting, which meant that we had to have a bank account for the meeting, which meant that we had to have a treasurer and a co-treasurer for the meeting. And this meeting had really dwindled significantly with the shutdown. So, it wasn't clear whether that 
could happen. And then there was going to be the technology position, which is the person responsible for starting the meeting, setting things up. We could have any number of people who were able to actually log in and chair the meeting. That took a while to figure out. So I actually picked up hosting on Zoom for the month of January, but I said, look, I'm not giving you a login to my personal Zoom account. And I know that there will be times, and I will do my best not to have that happen in January, that I will not be able to be there. The outcome is I think we we actually created a better structure for going forward. And at least where we are in the U.S., in, in Michigan, in the pandemic, and in personal opinions about in-person meetings, and plus the place that we had been meeting is still, I think, not allowing outside groups to come in and have meetings. They opened it up briefly right before things got bad again, but they were limiting meetings to 10 people. And we were like, how do we limit the number of people at the meeting to 10? It's not like we have a sign-up sheet that you sign up that you're coming to the meeting. People just show up. And what happens when the 11th person shows up? Do we say, sorry, you can't come in? And then it became clear that we didn't really want to be meeting in person anyway. So it looks like we're going to be meeting online for a while. So it's worth setting up this structure. It made me think about service. And I think a lot of the concepts of service, which we very rarely talk about in our meetings, really help us to understand things like don't have one person doing everything. Uh, By working with the traditions and with the concepts, at least in the back of our heads, I don't recall bringing them in consciously, except for Tradition 7 came up at least a few times about we really want to be self-supporting. We don't want to be reliant on somebody else's money paying for a Zoom account or something like that. So I don't know, that's a long answer to that question, but I realized we had a very similar thing happen in in this group that I'm part of, that I'm actually the group representative for. So I, I do have some stake in it, but I also was able to say very clearly, I am not going to be treasurer, co-treasurer, or technology person because I am group representative. And the program tells me that I should not be taking on multiple roles. So the reading was very apropos to my life. When you wrote and suggested a topic of service, I was like, haven't we talked about that? And I went and looked. And in 348 episodes, not a single one of them had service as a topic. My first episode that I did with Eric, he was talking about public outreach, which is a form of service. But we haven't talked explicitly about service. I was like, it's about time. Sure. But I'm curious why that came up for you. Because I'm doing more of it (laughs) than I ever have. During the last 12 months or so, it has kept me very accountable in the sense that it has kept me going to meetings in a more committed way than I would if it was just me going for myself. And it has helped me repeatedly. And I knew it would do this. Like there was an instinct in me that told me if I took on some service work, I would be forced out of my own whatever headspace in, in, in the case of stinking thinking, maybe a negative headspace or in the case of being really 
distracted or using my busyness as an excuse and so forth. Like it really just, it just got me there. And the accountability has been really important. Yeah, obviously we know what's been happening around the world in the last year that has made things more challenging than usual in particular ways. But also just like really feeling the benefits of service for things such as navigating my working life. If there's anything that I resent regularly, it's things about my work. Mm. (laughs) And I feel like service is really helpful. Just bring that into perspective. This is all part of my step four work, which, uh, yes, is still going. (laughs) But I spend a lot of energy resenting slash regretting things that have happened in the past. It's, it's funny, it seems unrelated, but I always find that being of service, just the mere fact that I'm thinking about something else and that I'm doing it because I have to be present for other people helps me get out of the ruts. I've had a physical health issue. Being of service, I, I won't go so far as to say like it fixes my physical ailments, but like also maybe a little bit. I think it makes me feel better, certainly, at least for the period that I'm doing it. And even a little bit afterward, there's something about the spiritual nourishment that I get from doing service that actually does make me better overall. And then I guess as well, navigating difficult emotions. I think over the last year, there have been things that have felt like obstacles that are just impossible to overcome and that I've really been reminded of my powerlessness, not in a nice way. (laughs) I get periodic rage at like the system or the machine or like people in authority or whatever it is that I'm annoyed with that I don't have control over and whatever that means on, on any given day. Service really takes me outside of that and actually channels those feelings into something constructive and generative and enriching for me and for others. I understand now where religious leaders get their motivation for the first time in my life. I'm not comparing myself to a priest or anything like that, but there is definitely something in. I I look at priests making decisions to sacrifice certain things in their lives. In the past, I would have just seen that as, it just sounds like a whole lot of self-sacrifice and depriving oneself of things. But I I guess I can see how they wouldn't see it that way, having now understood a little bit more about what it means to be of service to the sort of the greater good. Yeah. And I'm trying really hard to keep a a perspective of humility in here and not speak about it in like a grandiose sense because the service stuff is small scale, but the small things really matter. I think they're really significant in service and they allow everything to run and they allow everybody to just do a little bit and still be useful to the group. It doesn't require people giving up half of their week or something. So that's why I'm, I feel like I wanted to talk about it now because it's really given me a lot and I thought it would be nice to have a chat with someone who's been in the program for longer than me about <laughs> it. Service is a thing that for me has always to some extent been part of my program, sometimes more, sometimes less. When I was very new, I, I don't think I was giving anything I was taking because that was all I could do at that time. I, the meeting that I landed in as my home group at, at the beginning met for an hour and then had a small 
not exactly meeting after the regular meeting for newcomers. I started periodically leading that meeting, and I think it was about six months in. I was probably riding the pink cloud at that point. It not only gave some service to the group, but it, it also, I think, helped me understand what Al-Anon was about for myself, maybe a little better too. That meeting also had a rotating, we called it chair. Terminology varies between meetings a lot. In, in another meeting, this might be called the speaker seeker or the opener. This was a lead meeting, maybe another terminology. Somebody would give a 10-minute lead at the beginning on a topic, and then generally people who shared in the meeting tried to follow the topic. Didn't always happen, but that was the structure of the meeting. And so the person who chaired had the responsibility of selecting the person who was giving the lead for those four or five meetings in the month. It was not something you could do when you were brand new because you had to know enough people to ask people to share, you know? So I started doing that. We went back and forth on whether we had greeters or not. Sometimes we had greeters, sometimes we didn't. We would have greeters for a while and everybody would be gung-ho about having greeters and then it would taper off. I don't know. And I think that sort of thing happens. But those are different forms of service. For a little while, we actually had a coffee service. There was a big AA meeting downstairs and generally people who wanted coffee would go down to the AA meeting and get some coffee and bring it back up. Then the place we were meeting did major remodeling and said, you're not bringing coffee into the rooms anymore. So I had been doing various forms of service in the group, whether it's opening the meeting, leading the, the beginner meeting or whatever. But for a long time, I did not get into what we might call formal service. And I think that brings us to this question of, you know, what is service anyway? What kinds of service are we talking about? And I have heard it said, and I think it's true, that to some extent, just coming to the meeting is a form of service. For example, as a newcomer, seeing that many people who were all there because there was some alcoholic or something in their life that they needed some help with, as far as I knew, and I didn't really understand much about it in my first meeting, obviously, but just seeing that many people there was helpful. If I had come in and there were two people, I don't know how I would have, how I would have felt, right? If I had come in and there was nobody, that would not have worked for me, would it? So just being there is service. I wanted to piggyback off what you just said, because the question of what if you show up as a newcomer and there's no one there, I actually experienced something a little bit like that as a newcomer. First of all, there was no sign at the first meeting I went to, and there were lots of different entrances to the building, so I didn't know where I was. So I was already late, which made me stressed because you don't want to be the new kid coming to the class when everybody's staring at you kind of thing, especially when you're alanonic or speaking for myself. That's certainly a thing I didn't like. The person who ran the meeting wasn't there or she showed up very late, and it was fortunate in a way that I just stuck around and stood there waiting because I didn't know what else to do because I could have left and thought, oh, this meeting doesn't run. I guess I give up and go home. But she did show up and 
to start with, it was just her and I, and then one other person came quite late. It felt like the meeting was on its last legs, basically. And it felt not like the kind of environment that I needed to feel stable and supported. That said, the person who was running the meeting said a few key phrases to me that did keep me coming back. And her way of being of service was to say, you, you should potentially try to come to six meetings in a row to see if Al-Anon is for you. And in my head, I was like, oh, geez, six, six in a row. That sounds like so many. <laughs> that, <laughs> that sounds like such a commitment. But I just figured I was at the point where I needed to do what I was told to feel better. Again, we come back to that phrase, the gift of desperation. So I did what she told me and she was there all of those times. She couldn't control whether other people showed up, but she could control whether she showed up and she was able to give me her phone number so that we could be in touch in between meetings if I needed it. But yeah, speaking as someone who didn't come into sort of a stable meeting environment the first time, I really see the value in the sort of the showing up side of things, definitely. As far as some other little things, I think just all of the things that keep the meetings running in the most practical sense possible. The little behind the scenes bits and pieces, the setting up, the packing up, opening the room, someone having the key, you know, in place of Zoom meetings, having someone hosting the Zoom meeting. And I think just being available to talk to people is such a, a big one. So whatever form that takes, whether you stick around a little bit at the end of a meeting or are there a little bit early or that sort of thing. And I guess some other little bits and pieces that I've done later on I guess the first next thing was chairing meetings and then, yeah, taking on an official service role, which is something I did recently for the first time, which not everyone will necessarily do in their time in Al-Anon. I think a big important part of taking on a service role like that is understanding that you can't have expectations that other people are going to do it. You, you have to do it because you want to do it, I think, and you believe you're going to get something out of it. Yeah, and then I guess the other thing is doing service is like, practicing Al-Anon principles when we leave our Al-Anon meetings. So it goes back to mm. practicing principles in all our affairs. And in my case, it also means doing the, these shows with you now as well sometimes. It, it is a form of service, very much so. I'd like to start bringing in what some of our listeners had to share about service. I have a short one from Eric that I think fits pretty well right at this point. He says, I had a very recent personal experience earlier this week. It centers on what I feel is one of the or my most gratifying and helpful forms of service, as this is what I experienced too. That is simply reaching out to a newcomer, saying hi, offering my phone number. I did. He has stayed so far on the daily early bird meeting, only his fourth meeting today and shared for the first time. So scared, lonely, and feeling so alone, that was me 12 years ago when I stumbled into the room. So grateful someone did the same for me. Such a poignant reminder of the power of service. When I offer my experience, strength, and hope to others, it returns to me tenfold. Sometimes just sharing in a meeting may be the most significant piece of service we can do that day. I know I've heard from people sometimes years later that Something I said in one of their early meetings really you know, gave them hope, gave them inspiration, helped encourage them to keep coming. So yeah, that service. Helping set up. 
in that big meeting that I started in, when we were still meeting in person, it got up to somewhere between 60 and 100 people in the meeting. And so there were a lot of chairs that had to be set up before the meeting and they had to be taken down after the meeting. Generally, whoever showed up early would start setting up chairs. And you might have two people setting up chairs. You might have 10 people setting up chairs. And at the end, we asked everybody to take their chair and put it back on the rack. Okay. Little bitty piece of service, but it helps the meeting run more effectively. And I think also helps to connect people, give people a little bit of a stake in that group. When I moved to Melbourne and there was a bit of a gap between when I moved here and actually started attending a meeting here. But when I attended my first meeting in Melbourne, it's interesting that you said someone told you that they remembered something that you said when they were new. And I, I think for me that really resonates because I remember almost everything from my first few meetings. Like I remember things really vividly. I remember the first time that someone asked me to help set up. I remember someone asking me to chair at the last second without me being prepared and me thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know what that means. And they said, that's all right, we'll help you through it. It's not a big deal. I remember some of the shares, the really powerful shares that I heard in those meetings. And I remember the detail of them. I remember where people were sitting. It's just so amazing how how such things really stick with you when you're a newcomer because some of these ideas are just wildly new to us as newcomers and I don't think people necessarily realise the impact that they can have through their sharing of their own personal stories or maybe they do realise but certainly they do have impact on whether a newcomer feels that this is the place for them or that they can get life-changing recovery from these meetings. I think that stuff is so important. I just agree that even being asked to help put your chair away is a small act of a kind of social participation, of being part of the community. I mean, it's like a little thing, but it matters. It's also fine not to know how to do things and to ask. And I think that making newcomers understand that it's a safe space to not know everything. <laughs> the first time I chaired, it was really important for me to receive reassurance that it didn't matter that I had to stop and ask questions occasionally. This was not going to be like a professional presentation context. Those things are so important. When I started to take on this formal group secretary role in one of my current groups, I didn't take it on knowing that I would take it on and then we'd be transitioning face-to-face. -face. That sort of just happened. And it just happened because although things have changed here in general in life, we kept our meetings online for a while for the same reason that you described, which was that we had numbers limits in rooms and we didn't want to turn people away and we thought there's no really good way to do that. <laughs> so we kept things going online and then the, the minimum numbers got large enough that we thought, yeah, that's probably about the average size of one of our meetings and we can go ahead now. But it, it required me to take on a whole bunch of tasks that I yeah, they, they were very first-time tasks for me and I actually had to end up finding us a new venue because our previous church space was not willing to take community groups anymore. It was just too difficult for them. Mm. So I needed to find a new venue, arrange rent, be in touch with previous members who had experience in these things. There, there was a whole lot of logistical stuff. It was a bit like event planning in a way, but 
it was so rewarding because we had our first face-to-face meeting in however long and it was just incredible. I can't overstate the power of the feeling of being in the room with people again and these people who I had actually grown closer to online and it's just such a beautiful thing to be able to say the serenity prayer in unison, actual unison. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) Oh golly. And being able to say hi person when they say who they are, you know, just all these little things that you get really used to when you're in the actual room and and you get unused to when you're not there anymore. So I guess all, all of that is to say it was a bit of an extra for a first time group secretary to be doing a bunch of things like that. But it was rewarding and it was um, a pleasure doing it in cooperation with other members who were happy to help and not only happy to help but didn't make me feel like I was indebted to them for helping because this was for everybody. It wasn't just for me. So it didn't require this sort of gushing, thank you so much for helping, sorry to take you out of your, your other tasks for the day and always having to apologize for asking for help. No, that's what we do. We ask for help. And I think that's a really important part of service and being in a service role is you need to be good at asking for help because you can't do everything by yourself. Actually, a lot of the concepts when you dig into them is about making sure that everybody knows what they're doing and that you separate responsibility so that nobody's doing too much. Could you read the email from Louise? Hi, dear Spencer and Recovery Show listeners. To answer your question, what is service anyway and what kinds of service are we talking about? When I walked into these rooms almost five years ago this month, one of the things my first sponsor told me was that I needed to always say yes when asked to be of service. So I picked up a literature commitment at my very first meeting, and since then I have always had some sort of service commitment whether it be secretary or treasurer, literature person, and I served on a panel at a women's institute in Southern California. I am also a sponsor and have come to realize how that part of my service commitment has saved me again and again from my own, quote, monkey brain and, quote, default negative thinking, having grown up in an alcoholic home in addition to currently living with active alcoholism. Having a regular service commitment keeps me showing up and helps keep the focus on me. I did, however, sign up to be, quote, of service for a planning committee and realized I needed to respectfully bow out as I had overcommitted and was experiencing some lingering health issues at the time. I've learned in program when to pull back a little and practice self-care and when to step up. One of the character defects I picked up growing up in a dysfunctional home was to be a people pleaser. So it's still a fine line between, quote, being of service versus, quote, people pleasing. My strongest indicator is my gut feeling. Today I ask myself, am I doing this for fun and for free, or am I doing it out of obligation and pressure? If I do it for the wrong reasons, I get resentful, whereas if it's for the right reasons, then I have peace and gratitude. I do owe so very much to this program, and I get to use this mindset in all my affairs today. Even when I'm cleaning house, I can put on headphones and listen to program podcasts or music and have the mindset that I am being of service to my family and not slip into negative thoughts such as, poor pitiful me, why do I have to do all the work around here, which is where my head would go and can still go if I don't take the action to stay in positive thinking and maintain an attitude of gratitude. After all, not everyone has a house to clean, 
Having household chores is a quality of life issue. So I can say thank you today as I scrub and clean. That's a gift of program. So keep up the good work, Spencer. Your show really makes a big difference in my life and the life of so many people all over the globe. God bless you all as we trudge along the road of happy destiny one day at a time, walking hand in hand under the sunlight of the spirit. Louise in Southern California. I don't know whether my sponsor ever told me that I needed to say yes, but I definitely have heard that said, that when I'm asked to give service, I should say yes. But I I also love it that Louise points out that sometimes you can't. So, for example, I've been asked to give a 30-minute talk at an online AA conference that's happening in a, a week from today, which is not a week from whenever this podcast actually hits the internet. I said, I would love to do it, but I have other things that I'm planning for that day, and I need to know whether I would have conflicts, things that I had already planned. They sent me a Sign Up Genius link, and I went there, and I was like, okay, I can do this slot. I can't be there for the whole conference, but I can do my talk. Coming back to this always say yes, is that because this is what helps to keep my program active, my starting position should be Yes, if I can actually carry out the full commitment and it doesn't conflict with something else I've already committed to. And then if something else comes up that conflicts, then I have to say to that something else, no. But so much of the time when I'm asked to do something, my starting position is, no, I don't want to do that. So if I can start with the attitude of service, Yes, I would like to do that. Let me make sure that I actually can do it. Yeah, you're describing my first experience of people talking about service in a meeting. My my initial response was, I've got so much to do already. <laughs> and I'm like the typical kind of I'm too busy attitude, typical for me. <laughs> it, you know, actually, I remember my thought processes. I remember it clearly because it gave me a bit of a scare because I was so overwhelmed with the amount of stuff I was doing, which of course is part of my disease, if you like, that I thought, if this program requires me to also be of service and do things other than show up for the meetings, I don't know if I can stay and keep doing this. That was where my brain went. I was thinking I would sooner not come at all, (laughs) i.e. not get recovery, than have to feel obliged to give service, which that is such a symptom of the just the way that I was thinking at that time. Mm -hmm. And yet, yeah, the sort of initial response now is yes, because I get as good as I give, you know, and like what you said about keeping me active and present and accountable and all of that sort of thing. It's also like it's a symbol of gratitude, like it's a gesture of gratitude for the fact that others did the same for me when I was new and others continue to do the same for me in various forms of service that they give by being part of the fellowship. And it's a sort of paying it forward. Absolutely. I like to think of the the getting as good as I give as a sort of feedback loop of recovery nourishment. And if I think of it in that sense, then I think of service as being for me as much as it is for the group and 
the giving and the getting are, are concurrent. It's not like I have to wait for two years before I quote unquote get an IOU for the service I've given. It is really truly immediate. Yeah. So I definitely relate to what you said there. The temptation to be like, that's not a thing I enjoy doing. So actually I'm just going to say, no, thanks. Not my thing. Or, or in my case, in the early days, it was just staying silent in the meetings where people were talking about various service things that needed doing. I would just keep quiet <laughs> and hope that no one would look at me. <laughs> you make me think about, I came back to the church that I grew up in as a child at about the same time I came into recovery, and I think that is not a coincidence. We have these words that we say at the beginning of the service, which is, basically in the form of a set of promises to each other as to how we're going to be together. But it starts, the spirit of this church is love and service is its law. And that second line just, I didn't like that second line. What, I have to do service? Wait, what? (laughs) That's not what I'm here for. I have found some of the most fulfilling and joyful moments of my life in doing service in that community and in doing service in Al-Anon. So, yeah, it's, there's a real attitude thing there. I'm going to switch it up a little bit here, I think, with a voicemail from Kim. Hey, Spencer. This is Kim in Kentucky. This morning I read in one of the emails that I get, it said something that really made me start thinking about this whole topic. It said, fear is the primitive, powerful place our brains go when they perceive threat. It collapses imagination, closing down on a sense of the possible. The trauma of the pandemic makes hope for the future look difficult. But our program says hope for today. We honestly don't know what will happen in the next minute or hour. So we do the next right thing. And for me, doing acts of service are a great way of calming that fear of the future. Especially, I've taken comfort in crocheting chemo caps. They're easy to do with little thinking, and hopefully they in turn bring comfort to someone else, which is like a circle that gives me comfort. Another way I think about service is prayer. My faith tradition teaches that prayer doesn't change God's mind, but changes mine. I keep a prayer list of friends and family to lift up in prayer. Sometimes I use Pema Trojan's tactic of breathing in deeply and breathing out love to each of them. Sometimes I just go down the list thinking about how grateful I am for each and every person. And sometimes I just lift them up. So many times, one of these processes leads me around to service. Maybe I'm prompted to drop them a thinking of you card or call them up and offer a meal or just a friendly ear. When I'm willing and able to do the next right thing, especially when it's a small act of service, the tension is off of me. It's not all about me. And that makes me feel better, and hopefully is helping me to grow into a more mature, healthy person. Thank you for all of the work that you do and everyone involved with this podcast. It's truly a blessing in my life. Thanks, and have a good day. Thank you, Kim, for that wonderful illustration of small acts of service in your life. And not particular to program because, yeah, we take this and we can take it out into all our affairs. Definitely. 
Yeah, that's a really lovely reminder. And I love the it's not all about me thing. I must admit, I was a bit confused when I first heard that because, uh, you know, the slogan, let it begin with me and keep the focus on yourself and all of these things we get told when we're new in the rooms and told not to focus on the alcoholic. I thought, oh, so service is asking me to not do that. (laughs) But it's obviously different because service still at the end of the day is about me (laughs) as well. It's a very healthy way of redirecting our energies and desires to to be helpful, not in scare quotes, but actually helpful to others. It really teaches me the distinction between what actually being of help is versus when I think I'm being of help, i.e. the sort of stuff I used to do, which was to manage and manipulate and control and all of those sorts of things, which <laughs> is actually not being of help at all. <laughs> No kidding. We've talked a little bit about balance between service commitments and the rest of our life. I think there are probably many different approaches to finding that balance. How do you try to keep that balance? That you don't feel like your life is running into your service commitments and your service commitments are running into your life? The way that I'm doing it, and this may change, is by having a particular bracket of time that I've carved out for every week where I focus on Al-Anon related things, whether it be service or my step work or both. And that sort of just happened because it was attached to the time of the week that I would be speaking with my sponsor and then the meeting that followed that sponsor meeting. So it became a bit of an Al-Anon day or an Al-Anon half day. It it becomes a routine. So it, it allows me to both make sure that I do it that I'm committing and that I'm committed. And at the same time, it gives me a natural way to frame it and put a boundary around it so that, okay, maybe occasionally, especially when things like transitioning to -to face-to-face for the first time in a year is happening. Yeah, sure. That might leak into other days of the week a little bit, but generally speaking, what it means is that is the day and time that I do those things and I don't do them other times when I need to be doing other things. And that's really important for me. And it's actually taught me how to have that sort of perspective around other things in my life, which is, it's bonkers to think that I got through however much of my working life thus far from the age of, let's say 17, when I started my first real job, quote unquote, to now without having any sense of boundaries like it's I laugh because it's just it seems so unmanageable and of course it was unmanageable that is just how I rolled and that is my I'm not going to say natural that is my mode if I'm not practicing my program and not being very conscious of both boundary and being committed that the boundary is also there to ensure that I do the thing and don't flake out. But it kind of functions in both ways. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's one aspect of balance for me. And the, the other one is the slogans. The slogans for me function as a really important way of like understanding what my purpose is when I'm doing service and that it's not about me and my ego. So keep coming back, which means committing only to the things that I can actually do. <laughs> 
but that I do them. And then you have the ones that are listen and learn, keep an open mind, live and let live. For me, I think of those a lot when I'm in, in business meetings or in group conscience situations where being of service does not mean that I am there to tell anybody what to do. Those slogans help me to take my hands off when I need to and also gives me space to then go ahead and live life outside that particular space. Things like together we can make it. Service is something we do together. It's not one person. It's never one person. I like easy does it and and how important is it? My sponsor really helpfully tells me this when I sometimes stress about group dynamics or something not going the way that I hoped it would go or whatever. Al-Anon is a support group and it's a program of recovery. It's those things first and foremost. And if service becomes forced, if it becomes forceful, if I get nitpicky, if I become a perfectionist or I start telling people how they should be working their program or feeling like they're not working their program properly, I'm unlikely to say it out loud these days, but I might think it, you know, then it stops being supportive and it does not help me or others with the program of recovery. So remembering why I'm here is a really important place to come back to when I'm doing service and helps me to keep things in balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about you? So when you talked about scheduling your service work, I thought, that's brilliant. I'm not a schedule kind of guy, but when I have managed to, or when I've been forced to say this time slot is for this purpose, when I was working with the youth at at my church, that meant that I was with them from 1130 to 1245 every Sunday that helped to make it manageable. It was not this wide open ended commitment. I recently and with some reluctance volunteered at the area level. So the Al-Anon structure, some of us understand it. Maybe Al-Anon, you get your group, and you got a district is the small geographic region, area is the larger geographic region, at least within the U.S. I'm not sure how it works worldwide. It's probably very similar. So in my case, the district is more or less Ann Arbor and the communities around it. And the area is almost the state of Michigan, but not exactly. Then there's the World Service Office. It's the next level up. So it's not a real deep structure, but I volunteered for a commitment at the district level, which was to be the person who registers new groups and transmits changes about groups upward and outward and downward. This was a task that really nobody had been doing for about a year, maybe when the person who had been doing it moved out of the area. I first stepped into that by saying, I will redo the printed meeting list because it doesn't have anything about Zoom on it. Then somebody said, oh, thank you for stepping up to be the group changes person. And I was like, that wasn't exactly what I stepped up for. But, you know, I realized, yeah, that kind of, it goes together. But then it becomes this sort of open-ended thing. So somebody says an email saying, hey, we changed this thing about our meeting." And my feeling, my people-pleasing feeling is, well, I got to jump right in and update the lists and everything right away. And if I can say, okay, 
I will get to that on Saturday afternoon, which is my time for doing this. That takes off some pressure and makes it easier to do the job. So I have to think about that. It's also something that I really had to figure out when the podcast went from being three of us sitting in a room once a week and we could just say, okay, this week we're doing it Saturday afternoon, which was when we pretty much settled down to doing it after doing it for a little while, to, oh, I'm bringing in people from all over the country, from all over the world, and we have to be able to meet at a uh, mutually acceptable time. All of a sudden, that makes it wide open again. And my people-pleasing says, I want to give people as much choice as possible so that they can do it when it's good for them. What really helped me there was signing up for a scheduling service that allows me to put in, these are the times that I will hold open to do podcast recording. You can come in and sign up for a two-hour slot within one of these times. And then it brought it back down to something manageable. It also logistically meant that there wasn't all this back and forth emails, at least with people who are able to fit into the existing time slots, which when you're on the other side of the world, as we know, didn't work because all of my time slots were like in the middle of your night or something. But it it really made that feel a lot less onerous, maybe from both sides. I don't know. So yeah, brilliant idea. I have an email from Deborah. She writes, my journey of service in Elanon has definitely evolved over the years. Early on, I immediately volunteered to chair meetings, which on the surface sounds great. I believed that if I was teaching, I would be learning. However, in hindsight, I realized it was my need to be in charge. My motivation was misguided. The good news is that by chairing meetings and doing topics, I began to learn the magic of giving it so I can get it. Once I stopped volunteering to chair every meeting, allowing others to do service, I found that I could learn even more by listening, not just by doing. As with most of my behaviors, Elanon has taught me to have balance. All service all the time is not good for me or others in the group. I now occasionally chair a meeting, present a topic, sponsor, welcome newcomers, or chair literature or treasurer as various groups need. I enjoy any or all of these roles, but will wait patiently to see if others would like to step up. I've gained much recovery from supporting meetings and individuals and want everyone to do so as well. I love to see someone do service for the very first time. They are initially nervous. However, I have never seen anyone fail. No such thing in Al-Anon. And they always continue with additional service. A couple of other ways I've been involved in service may not seem like traditional service. A few years ago, I wrote an article for the forum. I was thrilled when it was published and greatly hoped my story would help others via that vehicle. I know I've gained so much from many of the articles I've read in the forum. I also co-hosted on The Recovery Show. That was such a fun and rewarding thing to do, and I have a few fellow Al-Anon female friends who I see socially. One of us invariably will say, I could use some Al-Anon on this. We can share whatever is challenging us in our lives and share our experience, strength, and hope with each other. No advice, no judgment, no fear. In that way, we provide service to each other. It's a beautiful thing. Thank you for all of your service to the recovery community. Stay safe, Deborah. Anything jump out at you? Yeah, I think this is something that I wanted to bring up and I'm glad that that we read that email because it is true that part of being of service is allowing other people the space to be of service. It is very tempting for me believe that 
taking responsibility means taking a whole lot of responsibility. (laughs) This is the beauty of the group. They gently reminded me when I was working through the logistics of moving us to this new venue, we are here to help you. Please ask us to help you. (laughs) And I'm so grateful that I have a group and fellow members who say things like that to me because I need those reminders. Like I really need them. And I am not good still in some circumstances at asking for help. So yeah, you can't be of service all the time for everyone constantly. It goes back to balance, but I I love the way that, that Deborah put that in her email. So thank you for that. It reminds me of going back to being of service to the youth in my church. Although I would like to be there every Sunday, I was working with teens and I felt that and I think I observed that continuity was really important to build a mutually trusting relationship. I feel like the continuity is important, but I can't always be there. Sometimes I'm sick. Sometimes I have other commitments. Sometimes I'm really just not feeling it and it would not be a good idea for me to be there. And having a team for that, we had generally four adults so that we had a minimum of two people required to be there for safety guidelines. So with a team of four people, it meant that, number one, I didn't have to be the leader every week. That's a relief. And number two, if I really couldn't be there, there probably were at least two other people that could be there. So yeah, there was this thing about asking for help. Yes. Learning to ask for help, being able to ask for help, understanding that asking for help is in fact expected is important there. Can you read the share from Maureen? Maureen says, Hi Spencer. Service is such an important part of Al-Anon. For a long time, I didn't have the courage to raise my hand to volunteer. But after many years in the program, I know how valuable service is and how much it helps me grow. I've done service at my group level and always treasure getting to know members of the fellowship better. I feel more a part of my group when I volunteer and not just someone silently sitting on the sidelines. I learn to trust myself and to trust others. Service teaches me that I'm not alone and if I need help that I just have to ask. Other members are always there and willing to help. Doing service by being a sponsor has enriched my life so much and I consider it a privilege. Instead of getting into people's business that I have no right to, I am asked to share in another member's program and help in working their steps. I thought for a long time that doing service was my way of paying back the program and my sponsor for all the tender care and unconditional love that I have received. But the rewards of service keep enriching my life and giving me gifts I never fathomed. Thank you for your service by making the recovery show available to so many of us. By responding to your questions and participating in your show, it allows me to do service and show thanks and gratitude for all you do. Kindly, Maureen. Thank you, Maureen. (laughs) And I do have to recognize that when I'm asked to give service in my meeting, when I'm asked to give service in my district, that I am already giving service to the worldwide Al-Anon community. And and I think people beyond Al-Anon listen to this, this podcast. And when I'm feeling like I'm not doing enough, I have to remember I am doing this thing <laughs> and and that that is service. And I can't do it 
without people like you. Without people like you, Esther. Without people like you, Maureen. Contributing by sharing your experience, strength, and hope. Contributing by asking questions. Contributing by suggesting topic ideas. Honestly, you keep me going. I think I would have run out of energy a long time ago without your participation in what I'm doing here. What did uh, Maureen speak to you about? I love that Maureen talked about how it's a privilege. It is a privilege. That's actually a really beautiful way of describing what service is. It feels like a privilege. It teaches me humility, reminds me why I'm here. It makes me feel like I'm part of something greater than myself, which actually brings me back to the higher power in a really significant way. Because for me, something that you originally said, Spencer, when I was in my sort of six-month hiatus between meetings in Oslo and my first meeting in Melbourne, one thing you said was what helped you overcome your sort of doubts about a higher power was just thinking about it as something greater than you to start with. And that has really helped me. And it also makes me see the links between the higher power speaking through the fellowship and the the concept of a higher power in general in my life. Mm-hmm. So that's what came up for me. And I guess the other thing as well is that it's the privilege side of things is really important, I think, because it reminds me that my default when it came to ideas of doing service, and I alluded to this a bit earlier, is to think of being of service. And, you know, this kind of comes from my family of origin that it's about self-sacrifice and suffering and that you need to see me suffer and you need to thank me for it or suffer for me as much as I do for you. And if you don't, I'm going to bring it back later (laughs) in the form of a grudge when we're having some conversation or in some other situation that has absolutely nothing to do with the thing that I'm resentful for. That's when I'm going to bring that back. And I am... I'm victim of my service to you, right? My quote unquote service and my quote unquote helpfulness, you know, how can you be so ungrateful when I do a thing that actually you never asked me to do to try to try to control your drinking, just to, to give one example. I think it's really helpful for me to do this kind of service because this is not that kind of service and it is rewiring my perspective on giving, which is to say that It keeps things running when we do things together and I can be a part of that. It's a way of showing gratitude rather than creating a series of IOUs. (laughs) Yeah, the whole watch me suffer thing. So one of the things that, that I have done is drive youth to weekend conferences where the way I put it is we all sleep on the floor of a church. I usually manage to find a couch to sleep on, but... Sometimes it was just my inflatable camping pad. I wonder how much of saying that was like, yeah, look at this this sacrifice that I'm making. Like I'm sleeping on the floor of a church with a bunch of smelly teenage kids, which is <laughs> not necessarily actually true either. Although I usually ended up with the boys and the boys do tend to be smellier than the girls. But what's missing from that description is how much fun it was. And how much joy and energy I got out of their joy and energy and being there 
no, it wasn't a sacrifice. I wasn't doing it because it was a sacrifice, but right. I could still make that statement. Okay. We have a, a voice memo from Carol. Hello, Spencer. Hello, Esther. Thank you both for your service. In regards to service, the question for me is always when to serve, when not to serve. It can be tricky for me. The challenge being I'm going to overthink it and I'm probably going to overdo it. I use the second step, step two, and turn it over, make it a higher power conscious connection as a solution to begin with, and then go from there. And then it's just way easier either way, whether deciding to serve or not serve or getting my motivations clear because I'm going to be prone to force solutions or over do overthink. Thanks so much. Take good care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Carol. Thank you for a different perspective on how to not overdo. Spencer, have you heard of the concept of helicopter parenting? Oh my God, yes. When I think of knowing when to take my hands off and knowing when not to do service and while doing service, knowing when is enough. One of the things that came to me when I was thinking about this was like, nobody wants a helicopter Alanonic to be doing service. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing worse. (laughs) For me, I'm now conscious of the extent to which a particular type of helping actually just makes me become a nuisance you know, and that is really counterproductive. I do think that in Al-Anon, we come from a place, I suppose I should speak for myself, I come from a place where I have to keep my motivations in check, like my motives. What are my motives for wanting to do this service? Is it because I've just been asked and I wanted to raise my hand because everyone was looking at me and I didn't feel like I could just sit on my hand and say, I'll think about it because I have trouble with that. And I'm learning to take that into my life in general. I was at a a meeting in an activist group that I'm participating a bit increasingly in at the moment. It was a relatively small number of us. And one particular question came up, which was, who wants to participate in X action on this day? And I didn't have my calendar in front of me. And I didn't know yet whether I could participate in X action and a previous version of me before an Al-Anon program would have just been like, oh my gosh, everyone else has their hands up. I'd better put my hand up too and volunteer for doing this. And then if I found out later that I couldn't, I would panic. I would be overwhelmed. I would become irritable and unre- unreasonable. And I would find myself in this kind of tizzy of thinking, oh my gosh, now I have to find a way to pull out of this And then I'd fall over myself apologizing and rationalizing and justifying and all of those over-explaining things, (laughs) (laughs) trying to pull out of this thing that I said yes to without knowing whether I could actually do it or not. And I feel like, yeah, I I actually literally physically sat on my hands so I couldn't put my hand up when that happened, (laughs) which is a really interesting experience. But whatever helps because I really was very pleased that I thought about it. And I didn't feel the need to say anything either. I didn't feel like, oh, I'm going to need to jump in here and tell them why I'm not sure whether I can participate or not. That doesn't matter. 
that actually doesn't matter. What matters is if I can, I will participate. If I can't, I'll let them know and I'll say I'll be at the next one or whatever it is. Like it's not that scary (laughs) in the end. (laughs) And it's the same in Al-Anon. My temptation to be like, yeah, I'll do that is very strong. And so for me, being of service in Al-Anon is also extremely important practice at what that previous email actually just said, which was knowing when not to be of service. Yeah, so important. Gina writes, I've found service is very helpful in my recovery. I get out as much as I put in. The more I engage myself and connect with the program, the more it enriches my life. It gives me the perfect place to practice the traditions and the concepts like not controlling, letting others do things differently than I would do, making my voice heard once and then letting it go, etc. One thing that is challenging in my in-person community, as well as international Zoom meetings I've attended, is that there are few people offering service. Often it falls on the shoulders of a few people, as many members do not step up to do service. I wish this wasn't the case, and I'm not sure how best to encourage rotation of service. I also don't know what to do in moments where the meeting is struggling or there's an awkward moment where the person chairing does not know what to do. If I'm not hosting or chairing, I do not feel it is my place to jump in and save, but I also feel it makes the meeting feel unsafe, unstable, and not fertile ground for relaxed and open sharing. I don't want to be dominating, but it is hard when people don't step up or the people who do aren't sure what to do, and then some things fall short or are less smooth than I think could be possible. Perfectionist, I know. I'll keep coming back. Thanks for doing this great topic. Keep well. Take care. Kindly, Gina. I have had that challenge in at least one of my meetings where we're like, we kind of need a person to take on this role. And everybody at least effectively sat on their hands. Sometimes it's, we need somebody to open the meeting next week. The script for the opening for this meeting actually says, stay silent until somebody volunteers. Yeah. And then there's the, but they're not doing it right thing, which I totally feel it, Gina. I totally feel it. You're not reading the words in front of you the way they're written. So (laughs) what? (laughs) You know? (laughs) So what? It's sometimes hard for me to give space to somebody for whom that is important. We had an issue come up in a recent meeting where somebody read the 12 steps with the word God replacing the word him or his one of the people in the meeting really didn't like that and brought it up at the group conscience. And we said, yeah, the, the, the steps are written in a certain language. It actually takes something like the vote of three quarters of all the Al-Anon groups in the world. If we want to change one word in any of the steps, but at the same time, we can't, stop people from saying things. I I think we said, you know, we recognize your discomfort. We recognize where you're coming from, but what do we do? Do we put a statement in the opening? Like you shall read the 12 steps exactly as written. In that case, it was for me to understand where that person's discomfort was coming from, because I sometimes have that same level of discomfort about things that aren't the way they should be. Just as the program tells me I have to let the alcoholic loved one in my life 
have the dignity of doing things and finding their own way to recovery, I think I have to let the people who are doing their best to do a piece of service in a meeting to do it their way. Yeah. Thanks, Gina. Yeah. Gosh, there's so many things in there. That experience that you described, Spencer, I I think I might have shared this with you in private before, but this has happened in meetings I've been in. As I understand it, this is now a topic that's being, uh, the pronouns in the 12 steps is apparently a topic that's now being addressed at the world service level. That's what someone told me. I did not know that. Interesting. So, yeah. So we will see what the outcome of that is because I think it's been a point of, I guess, contention in a lot of meetings in a lot of places for understandable reasons. When you were talking about, and when Gina was talking about the sort of things need to be right, quote unquote, or done the right way, one of the funny ways in which this manifested most strongly for me when we were in lockdown here was people not knowing how to do online meeting etiquette, quote unquote, properly. And I guess that was a pet peeve of mine because I think I'm quite easily distractible when it comes to for example, people walking around a lot and shaking their mobile phones so that we're like getting seasick while looking at them or people forgetting to turn their mic on mute and these sorts of things, you know, or people talking over each other because they don't realise that the digital sound algorithm doesn't allow for the same kind of chatty dynamic as in-person does. These sorts of things. And I just remember having to do so much live and let live, let go, let God, how important is it? <laughs> like really, those are my hang-ups. They're actually my problem. And everyone's here for recovery. We're all here for the same reason. And I can get over those little things for the benefit of the group. Like it comes back to group welfare. I resisted the urge to jump in and say something when someone had forgotten to turn their mic on mute and they were like yelling at their dog in the middle of a meeting. I'm like, number one, probably someone else is going to jump in. <laughs> but but that's a bit of a tragedy of the commons attitude and I recognise that there's problems with that too. But also like they'll probably figure it out and it's just a funny interruption and the world hasn't ended and it doesn't matter and we can just keep going with our meeting. These things that I get hung up on in the big picture very rarely matter. <laughs> if I can extend the same understanding as I do in that context, in my everyday life, when I'm dealing with my work stuff or my family of origin quirks, I can get so much benefit from my recovery. My brother was visiting me a couple of months ago now for the first time since lockdown had ended. There were things that he was doing that I had forgotten that he does because I haven't lived with him since we both lived with our parents that could have made me really mad. (laughs) I just really did a lot of let go, let God. And and how important is it? Because I was thinking, okay, he's here for three days. He is my first hug, human touch hug that I've had in 10 months. It is amazing to be able to have someone in my home again. I have the gratitude of a family member who loves and cares about me these little things, I can get over them and I don't have to live with him in the long term. So I can actually even just let them go temporarily. Like I don't have to worry about letting them go for the rest of my life. (laughs) I can let them go tonight, now. 
And I feel like, yeah, learning to let things go that are maybe bugging me, that are really little things in these Al-Anon contexts can teach me how to do the same in, in other walks of my life. So thank you for that. We have a voicemail from Barb. Hi, Spencer. This is Barb. I'm responding to your question about service. At the beginning of the pandemic, when our in-person meeting was discontinued, I panicked for a minute and I said, oh my gosh, it felt like the rug had been pulled out from under us. And I know a lot of us felt that way. So my first question was, what can I do? And my second thought was, I'm too early on in my recovery and I felt too fragile and vulnerable to go without meetings. Um, and of course, I could go to in the rooms or something like that. I'm in ACA, Adult Children of Alcoholics. But I really wanted to be with my home group with people that I knew and had established a relationship with. So we tried a free conferencing call service, and that didn't work. And then we finally went ahead and, and paid for a Zoom membership. And that's what we use our seventh tradition dues toward. And I created some meeting formats using things that I found at the ACA website and a meeting format we had for our in-person meetings. And I just essentially, with the help of a couple other folks in my group, created this whole recovery ecosystem, if you will. I refer to it as our Zoom kingdom. And now we're hosting and taking turns hosting our Wednesday night meeting and our Saturday morning meetings, which we are usually doing. A group of us have worked all 12 steps in a Sunday afternoon group that we decided to start. And then we finished that and started an 11th step meditation group. And just the good stuff just keeps going. And we're really grateful to see um, each other on Zoom. And I've been really grateful to be able to be of service in that way. I'm the, the treasurer. I manage the Zoom membership. And I've gotten to know a lot of people who I didn't know very well, who I used to see in person. And now I see them on Zoom twice, three times a week, and we're just such good friends now. So I'm grateful for technology, definitely. And I've definitely been of service more now during the pandemic than I ever was in person. And I'm grateful for the opportunity. And then my own recovery has really uh, benefited from all of this. really feel like I'm making a lot of progress and that I have all these tools to, to call on. So Anyway, thanks for the opportunity to share feedback, and I hope all is well. Take care. Thank you, Barb, for that example of personally stepping up to service when there was a need. Recognizing a need and, and recognizing that you were able to do something about it, but it sounds like also asking for help from other people to make sure that things got done in a way that benefited the group. It really reminded me that one of the actual honest reasons that I took up the call for a new group secretary in that group was, and I, I did sit on my hands for a bit and I thought about it for a few weeks actually, but the reason I took it up was because I was recognizing in myself that I was starting to feel apathy in my kind of attendance to the online meetings. Mm. The online meeting environment, because I had to do it for work as well, it drained me. And at the end of a whole day of for example, being in online meetings and doing all the other online stuff that my entire work life had now migrated to, the very last thing I wanted to do was to get on another online meeting. On the other hand, I also really needed recovery. So I did go a lot of the time. Sometimes I would turn my camera off and be making my dinner while I was listening, which wasn't always a bad thing because I do tend to focus better when I'm not 
distracted by visual things. So sometimes that actually ended up working well. But I also did a lot of, oh, I'm on my way somewhere, so I'll just do listening only today. Or, oh, I'm late. Oh, I'll just jump in whenever it makes sense for me because it's not disturbing anybody in this online context. It was becoming a bit of a chore, if I'm completely honest. Going to meetings was becoming a bit of a chore. I actually took up the group for a secretary role partly with the knowledge that it would keep me accountable in the sense of I would have to properly show up and be visible and pretend as if I was in a real room with people. Also that it would challenge my tendencies and force me to learn what it means to be of service without letting the role take me over completely or without allowing myself to take the role over completely. So to really pull myself out of that apathy and not allow myself to go down the other extreme route, which is that it's the only thing I ever do and everybody needs to be great. Back to the suffering thing, you need to see me suffer. So that's actually, yeah, the online meetings not quite working for me in the way that the face-to-face meetings were ended up being a kind of blessing because it channeled me into taking up this group secretary role and really stepping up. And yes, we've returned to face to face, but now I'm reaping the the beautiful rewards and mutual recovery nourishment that giving service of that sort actually gives. Yeah, absolutely. Can you read the email from Heather? Hi, Spencer. Great topic. Pre-program, I was literally a volunteer whore motivated by praise. I thought that keeping busy meant I was making a difference in the world. And in truth, I might have actually done some good work. But now I am so keenly aware of my unhealthy motivation. Service has been one of my blessings of working from home in the pandemic. First, being at home with my husband, two teens and mother-in-law put me front and centre when home personalities were in play. I could no longer exist in my bubble of denial being away from the house. So part of my service was to work my program, talk with my sponsor and go to meetings so that I could better understand the inner workings of what was happening, make adjustments in my own behaviour and learn new healthier ways of doing life at home. Second, I basically stopped doing all volunteer work in my community. Then, quote, my community shifted to the spiritual community of Al-Anon. I started to understand traditions one and two and the importance of participating in meetings of speaking my experience, strength and hope so that others could engage in their recovery with me and of using my voice in business meetings as an active member of the community. Before I would put everyone else on a pedestal and believe they were more knowledgeable, experienced and vital than me, now I understand that we all equally bring something valuable to the table every time we participate. Finally, I have learned more about service through sponsorship. Sponsoring others helps me strengthen my own program by keeping the steps top of mind. And every time I interact with a new person or a sponsee, I am engaging in paying it forward, spreading the message of Al-Anon and leading by example. This has been such a huge gift for me over the last several months. And I feel so truly blessed for the beautiful souls that have been guided to me by my HP, who knew how much I wanted a spiritual sisterhood. The funny thing is that my sponsor worried about me taking on too many sponsees since I have a pretty open and inviting personality that draws folks in. But after a few honest conversations, we both came to the conclusion that, one, it's not up to her to manage my program like that. Two, I get to keep working my program with her as my HP keeps making these connections for me. 
And three, I am living in service in the very way that Step 12 guides us to. I have a huge loving heart. I was meant to be right where I am doing this service for myself and for others. It's a win-win. Thanks for letting me share. Thanks also for your service. It means everything to me and to many. Heather C., Southern California. Yeah. In the middle, she talks about putting everyone else on a pedestal and believing they're more knowledgeable, experienced, and vital than me. For me, I think that was an obstacle to stepping up. It is an obstacle sometimes still for me to stepping up because of that inner voice that says, who am I to be doing this? I don't know what I'm doing. I'll do a bad job. Other Somebody else is going to do it better than me. The program gives me that, that opportunity to step up and do something, even when I'm not sure I can. Yeah, I relate to that really strongly as well. The fact that I don't understand what I have to do in the group secretary role simply means that I will learn while I'm the group secretary, and that's fine. And that will involve enlisting the help. Again, it comes back to asking for help of other members and that's completely fine. It's good practice, again, for real life, for being okay with displaying that I don't know everything. (laughs) I haven't got all the answers. I think that's actually very important in my working life too. Like role modelling humility and role modelling that I don't have all the knowledge and all the answers is really important. I get that from Al-Anon, which is beautiful. Even really experienced members, the ones that have really strong recovery will not be posturing about how much recovery they have. (laughs) From my experience, they're always learning from everybody, including the newcomers. And that's what I love about service. I am forever teachable in this. I get to learn from everybody's experience, strength and hope. It's as much about that as about what I can give and share. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I know when I first started in the program, there was a woman in the room who had over 20 years of experience. And, and I thought, oh, man, she's got this thing. She's, you know, really strong program, et cetera, et cetera. But sometimes she would come in and say, I'm starting over today. I'm faced with this thing that I am powerless over and I'm right back to almost where I started and and I really need this meeting. And for so long, I felt like she was one of those people who was there so that the rest of us could learn from her. Right. And no, we're there so we can learn if, if learn is the right word from each other, grow with each other, lean on each other. And it's never one way. And I think that's one of the keys about service is that, It's not one way. It's both ways. Let's listen to this share from Mary Lou. Hi, Spencer. This is Mary Lou. In response to your question about service, I'm reminded that uh, a number of years ago, I had gone to an Al-Anon State Conference. For some reason, I got up very early on a Sunday morning and went to one of the talks. And the talk was, let it begin with me. That was what it was titled. Honestly, I don't even really remember what the content of it was. But what happened to me was that I started thinking about all of the ways in which I had been oblivious to 
other people's service in Al-Anon. When you come into a program like I did, very much self-focused and focused on my family member whose behavior I wanted to change, I didn't really think very much about how did that meeting come to be? And sitting there on that Sunday morning, I started realizing that I had really taken it for granted that these meetings were there, that there were books to read, that there were chairs to sit on, that someone had called and arranged with the church to rent the room out, to have information available online or whatever, so that people had heard about the meetings, could get to them. And people that came to meetings and shared their experience, strength, and hope. I had never thought, why is this meeting here? Why were any of these meetings that I was going to here? That morning, I sat and thought for a very long time about how I had truly benefited from everything, from meetings being there, from people coming, from books, from you name it. I had benefited from it, and I had never given one thought to how did this meeting come to be and who was supporting it, and that all those people were there to listen to me complain about my family member. <laughs> now, sometimes when I talk with people about service, I think of like small service, if you will, local service versus kind of big service. I think of big service as being involved like at the district level, but I myself have focused on a couple of different aspects of service. One is going to certain meetings on a regular basis, making sure that people stick with conference-approved literature, supporting the idea that people don't cross-talk, but also just sticking with the format of the meeting and making sure that newcomers feel welcome, that they get as much information as they are interested in uh, getting or taking, and sometimes following up with them about things that they said or just trying to share my experience, strength, and hope with them. Also, I think reflecting back to them, especially if they've been coming for a little while, how much they've changed. I think it's very hard. I know it's been hard for me to see myself as uh, changing. And in, in a crazy way, I feel like it's easier to see that change in other people. So, for example, if you come to a meeting and you cry for the first however many meetings you come to, and then one day you don't cry, then people feel like, oh, I didn't cry. And then to point out to people that's, in a sense, a phase that you have to go through when you come into Al-Anon, right? That in the beginning you cry, and then eventually there's a day when you don't cry. And then when a new person comes and they're in their phase of crying, then you think, oh, like, I'm not in that place. And so then to be able to help people recognize their own progress, that they used to do whatever— and now you can see them beginning to apply the principles of Al-Anon to their life in a way that they might not have, you know, prior to coming into Al-Anon. I guess the other kind of service this year, I had been complaining to my sponsor at the very beginning of the, the COVID pandemic. Our state shut down supposedly for two weeks, and I knew that it was not going to be two weeks. I assumed it would be more like three months, and here it's been a year now. And I said, why isn't Al-Anon, the WSO, doing something about this? And she looked right at me and she said, maybe you're being called. And I thought, oh, that cannot be true. 
I really consider myself to be technology adjacent. In other words, I participate in online meetings. I go to webinars. Prior to all of this pandemic, I had never set anything up. But as we started to go along, I did some research into online meetings, and then I got together with a couple of other people in our area. Eventually, we ended up setting up an online meeting for every physical meeting. So the area I I live, there's a, a meeting every day, and some days there's two meetings a day. And now we have an electronic meeting for every physical meeting that we used to have. After we had cobbled this whole thing together, then it's it seemed like it made more sense to move to a single program. At the beginning, we had multiple programs going just based on people, what people had through their work or whatever. And so we eventually moved the entire area to a single program. We now have multiple, uh, we started off calling them technical hosts, but now they're meeting greeters to make it seem a little bit less technical. So it's not really that challenging to open up the meeting to just be there and admit people to the meetings. And then we've set up a schedule so that people have the same phone number and the same link to get into every meeting. And I have to tell you that I have, when I think about that higher level of al not just going to the meetings, but that higher level of taking on some sort of an office, either as a group representative or district representative, any of those kind of positions. I've avoided those like the plague. They seem way too much like my regular job to me. That really wasn't how I wanted to uh, spend my time volunteering. I would much rather uh, be a sponsor and talk about individual person's issues than try to figure out how to make Al-Anon work at, that, at those higher levels. Don't get me wrong, I'm very grateful that other people are willing to step up into those positions, but I just, that is not where I feel like my strengths are. But this business of setting up these meetings, the fact that we switched over from multiple meeting formats to one format, some people had a preference for one format over another format, I really feel like I've learned a tremendous amount, maybe even too much information about people's fear of technology, feelings about technology, concerns about technology, all of those things. But I also got to see all of my own personal character defects up close and personal, my need for things to go perfectly, my perfectionistic tendencies in myself, the fact that it wasn't enough to just do the simplest, most rudimentary uh, version. I wanted to do the bells and whistles version, and on and on. So this really presented me with new opportunities to meet with my sponsor, to talk about my own expectations, about other people, and about myself. All of these things were affected by growing up in an alcoholic home. One of the things that they say about service is that it definitely helps to identify our own issues. Encouraged to change for October 2nd, says, the Al-Anon program was there for me when I needed it. I will do what I can to ensure that it continues to thrive. I know that any service I offer will strengthen my own recovery. And the quote is, uh, in all our affairs, God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. He got me involved in service work. It saved my life, my family, my sanity. It's such an interesting idea that as soon as we get our kind of, I'll speak for myself, as soon as I got my own obsessive personality 
not to be focused on my family member and focused on myself and on other things. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Lou. I love this personal example of how actually taking on this new service role of helping to coordinate putting together online meetings for your area moved your program. We talk in generality sometimes about how service helps our program, but here's a really specific example. So thanks for that. And this, why isn't the WSO doing something about this? And my sponsor looked right at me and said, maybe you're being called. (laughs) Oh, snap. I know. I love that. And that's such a beautiful thing that my sponsor does this as well. It's a kind of without telling me I'm being maybe a bit judgmental or whatever. It's so gentle, but she's really good at calling me out on my BS, you know, (laughs) at moments where I'm just like, why isn't such and such happening? She would totally be the type of person to say, you know, why don't you make it happen then (laughs) if you want it to happen, which I love. And I really loved that share. Thank you so much for that. Thank you, Mary Lou. That was really great. I, I, was also reminded when you were sharing about the the sort of insight you were getting into various people's feelings about using online video technologies. I, I also found it really interesting that people were making it known how they felt about these things, whereas why would we have ever known something like this about them in the past? There was just no opportunity to be like, here's my opinion about Skype or whatever it was. And now it was all being laid bare. And I had one meeting that didn't go from face-to-face online until a very long way into lockdown. And I didn't have anybody's number from that meeting. So I didn't know why. And I had no one to ask why. (laughs) Eventually, when one person started a Zoom meeting, they said it was because the group felt that it it was confusing the, the sort of idea of groups being autonomous and a lot of them really felt very strongly that they wouldn't participate in a thing, in a variation of that face-to-face meeting in an online setting. They didn't want to call it the same name because they didn't want it to be associated with that particular meeting or group. And there there were some real kind of feelings around it, I think, that happened. And I think part of it is, I don't know, I'm speculating here, but there, that is the meeting that I went to that had the largest proportion of older members, you know, and who knows for them, I think recovery meant being in a room with people. And if they couldn't do that, they didn't want the meetings, (laughs) but I had to really navigate my own feelings and judgment about that and just be like, okay, I'm grateful that this one member has taken the initiative to be of service to those who do want to have an online meeting. And I can be grateful for that. And I can do that without concerning myself about the opinions of the people who aren't showing up. That's not my stuff. That was great. So thank you, Mary Lou. Yeah, thanks for that great chair. I want to finish with an email from Kate. Hi, Spencer and Esther. I'm emailing in response to the topic of service. The reading for July 6th, Encouraged to Change references a prayer someone in Al-Anon suggested I read every morning when I was early in recovery. I believe the prayer is most commonly known as the prayer of St. Francis. For me, this prayer does a beautiful job of both explaining service and its importance. And here's the text of the prayer. I'm, I'm going to read this as she sent it. These are not necessarily words that that I would use for myself, but I'm going to just read what she sent. 
Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring love. Where there is offense, let me bring pardon. Where there is discord, let me bring union. Where there is error, let me bring truth. Where there is doubt, let me bring faith. Where there is despair, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, let me bring your light. Where there is sadness, let me bring joy. O Master, let me not seek as much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that one receives, it is in self-forgetting that one finds, it is in pardoning that one is pardoned, and it is in dying that one is raised to eternal life. Thank you so much for your service, Best. Kate. The song selection, Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel, is one I chose because the title itself really reflects for me the role that Al-Anon and the fellowship has played for me in times of difficulty. I love the lyrics, I'm on your side, oh when times get rough and friends just can't be found, like a bridge over troubled water I will lay me down. I, I love this because the I in this song is the fellowship for me, and it's actually not an individual, and that's a really important thing to remember for service and for what the function the fellowship has. If a newcomer comes into the room, it's not about me jumping in and making sure that they get everything they need. It's actually a team effort. That's what happened for me, and that's why it worked for me, that it wasn't just one personality coming in and being like, I'm going to be the person to rescue you. That would have been super off-putting. I actually really like that song because it reminds me that it's the bridge over the troubled water is this kind of really solid infrastructure. (laughs) And I feel like the group is really solid. And when you have it as a group and not everything relying on one individual, it is solid and it is reliable and you can fall back on it. There's no fear that if you turn around tomorrow, it's not going to be there. Yeah. Because our conversation had been quite long, and we talked a lot about what was going on in our lives recently with recovery. We did not do the usual Our Life in Recovery segment. I did want to say a little bit about an upcoming topic. Eric suggested a maybe new slogan, Don't Engage with Rage. How have you engaged with rage, and how is the program helping you to find different ways when you feel like you want to rage. You can call and leave a voicemail, 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website, or you can send a voice memo or email to feedback at therecovery.show. We would love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of service or any of our upcoming topics, including Don't Engage with Rage. And speaking of feedback, the conversation that Roberta and I had about teen depression and self-harming in episode 348 evidently touched many of you. Here's what some of you had to say. T writes, hello, I just completed listening to this episode of the podcast and felt compelled to share my story with you. From the age of 13, I self-harmed. My method of choice was a razor blade. My intent was not to commit suicide, but to physically see my emotional pain. 
I lacked the ability to identify my emotions and feelings, so when a situation, conversation, or thoughts became too overwhelming, I couldn't articulate the feelings, so I chose to see them. I would continue this behavior until my mid-twenties. I grew up with a high-functioning alcoholic parent. I never realized there was an issue until my late twenties. I took some time to join my 12-step program, Al-Anon, but once I did, I slowly learned how to embrace my feelings and understand what they are. About six months into my program, I realized throughout the years prior to Al-Anon, I did different versions of self-harm. Once I stopped cutting myself, I moved on to alcohol. Once realizing I might follow in my parents' footsteps, I moved on to food. I realized there was never a time in my life I didn't use some type of self-harm to feel what I was feeling. Since this realization, I've been able to work out the self-harming and truly feel my emotions. i found while I have to embrace anger, fear, and sadness, I have also discovered pure happiness, true laughter, and love. I have deep gratitude for my parents seeking help in their own 12-step program in order to lead me into my Al-Anon. For without my program, I would still be practicing a version of self-harm and being miserable in life. Thank you for your podcast. It truly is a meeting in my pocket I can pull out and rely on. Sincerely, T in Colorado. Stephanie writes, I try not to have any regret, but I sure wish I would have heard this very episode five years ago when my struggling daughter was 14 years old. Such inspiration and hope to be gained from this. It would have saved me a lot of parenting mistakes and enabling anger and fear. It may not have changed the course of my daughter's choices, but I could have been a much better support and help to her. I've been listening to your show for about a year now and cannot get enough. Your show has helped me replace anger and fear with love, compassion, and empathy. My daughter has noticed it, and we have a great relationship now. Thank you for all the work you do. It is more helpful than any therapy and medication combined. Alicia wrote briefly, Thank you for a wonderful and heartfelt show. Your words and efforts are greatly appreciated. Eric wrote, thank you, Roberta and Spencer, for this episode. Took me a week or so to summon up the courage to listen. I'm glad I did. Reminds me of something I heard from a friend in program when I was living through these circumstances with my 14-year-old daughter. When going through hell, keep going. Yours in recovery, Eric B. Gene wrote, Thank you so much for the episode on teen depression and self-harm. It amazes me how I can be sitting in a meeting or listening to your podcast and I hear my story told by someone who also suffers from the family disease of alcoholism. In 2018, after going through a year-long separation with plans to divorce my qualifier and then his death from liver disease, I found myself in the emergency room with my 14-year-old son. We had been preparing for a hurricane when my son had an outburst and would not talk to me about it. I told him that it was okay if he didn't want to talk to me, but we should go to the ER and he could talk to someone there. Then a friend on the opposite end of the country called me and told me that my son was posting on social media that he wanted to hurt himself. Luckily, I had been attempting to turn every minute of every day over to God for the previous two years, so I asked God to help us. I was able, through his guidance, to agree to a 10-day hospitalization, despite a forecasted hurricane. I was even able to change jobs to accommodate his outpatient treatment. The podcast helped me reflect on that time in our lives. As I reread the email to my sponsor that I wrote in the middle of the night during that ER visit, I realized how grateful I am for the Al-Anon program and for the people who share their experience, strength, and hope. Without this help, I would never have had the tools to survive that time in our lives. Thank you to you and your many co-hosts. Jean from Virginia. And Mary says, I can't thank you enough. My daughter attempted suicide this week in a shocking, violent way. 
I'm trying to go back to basics in Al-Anon. This podcast helped more than you could know. Our mental health journey with our daughter began when she was 16. She's 26 now, and she has added alcohol to the mix. I will be following. Wonderful, honest, clear Al-Anon tools. Gracias. I want to just say thank you to Roberta. She wrote to me and said that she was experiencing a lot of fear, a lot of false evidence appearing real, I think is what she wrote, and that she realized she needed to talk about it. And thank you so much for doing that. Beth wrote with a question. I just listened to the episode on detachment. Are these concepts the same or similar when dealing with the drug addicted? My answer to that is, in my experience, yes, I have used these principles, detachment, for example, in dealing with alcoholism, in dealing with clinical depression, in dealing with psychosis, and in dealing with just malbehaving people in my life. They work for a lot of things where I'm powerless or mostly powerless over another person's actions and choices. Keep coming back, Beth. Gina asks about the word qualify, and this is a little different than the other sense of that word qualifier that we've been talking about here. Hello, Spencer. With Zoom, it has been wonderful to try out meetings in new places. In some New York Zoom meetings, I've noticed people say, thank you for qualifying or for your qualification when someone leads a meeting and shares their experience, strength, and hope. In my area, I've only heard of calling that the lead share or someone leading the meeting or being the speaker of the meeting. I don't understand the word qualify being used in this context, and it rubs me the wrong way, but perhaps that's just because it is a bit confusing for me. I wonder if it will be mentioned in your qualifier episode. And a topic suggestion. It might be interesting to have a Many Voices episode on what 12-step programs are like on Zoom meetings what people like or don't like, best practices for hosting or chairing a meeting on Zoom, what it's like being a newcomer on Zoom, have meetings changed since going online, etc. For example, I was so accustomed to saying, hi, name, and thanks, name, at in-person meetings, but on Zoom, people are muted and instead wave, clap, or do a thumbs up. Kind regards, Gina. So, with regards to that word qualify, I haven't heard that so much in an Al-Anon meeting, but I have heard that in an AA context where maybe a speaker starts by saying something about how they're going to qualify themselves, meaning they're going to tell a little bit about their alcoholic story to let us know how they qualify for being a member of AA. And I guess that might have carried over to these Al-Anon meetings you're going to. I'm not sure. Maybe somebody who uses that word in that context can can help us with that. Thanks for writing, Gina. Laura wrote, Hi, Spencer. I've been listening to your show for just over a year now. I was introduced by a friend of mine who I didn't know also had a loved one who struggles with alcoholism in a moment of crisis on my first ever girls trip. I decided to leave my two very young children for the first time over the weekend with their father, my loved one from whom I am separated. He was and is still living with his parents, so I knew I had that safety net built in, although I'm not sure it made my decision to go on this trip any easier. When I became aware of his potential usage and fearful of my children's safety while I was a plane ride away from them, my friend tried comforting me with, let's see if we can find an episode of this show to watch. I had no idea that the kind voice that came through her speaker would soon become such an important staple in my life. 
I'm not sure how much I heard through my anger, tears, resentment, hurt, embarrassment, fear that day, and we probably only made it 10 minutes or so before my sponsor called me back. I had been an off and on again member of Al-Anon for about three years after my son's birth and my husband's first round in rehab. It was during the end of my daughter's pregnancy that I realized I needed more help and a bigger support system, hence my having a wonderful sponsor. Getting to meetings with my two young ones wasn't always easy, and then COVID hit. I've been so incredibly grateful for the support, wisdom, experience, and hope that your podcast has brought into my life this past year. All the shares, co-hosts, and feedback from listeners, it's all so good. I've wanted to write in many times to say thank you or to give feedback and just haven't taken the time to do so. My apologies. However, I felt it was time on this about one-year anniversary. I so appreciate all you do and have done, especially this past year, to keep providing such a wonderful tool for what I'm sure is so many, albeit voiceless, listeners. I revisited the Boundaries episodes many times, one of my areas in need of constant attention, growth, and progress, and have recently stumbled upon some of your parenting, co-parenting episodes. So relatable. Stay or go and choices episodes and your episode on intimacy. Simply thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your commitment to your work here. I'm deeply grateful for the role that you and this podcast are playing in my recovery and on my journey to be a better, more spiritually and emotionally healthy me. To any newcomers, keep coming back. It works if you work it and you're worth it. And love yourself the most. Wise words I needed early on from my sponsor, Laura. Thank you for those kind words, Laura. And I'm glad that we're providing support because that is why we do this. It's 12-step work. Carol is adding to the compulsive eating thread that we've had over the last few episodes. As a gratefully recovering compulsive overeater of many years, I found Al-Anon when addiction issues in my husband surfaced and shattered my family. What I have noticed is that many people seem to find other programs that help enormously with their other issues. So six meetings of OA will help determine if turning to food for comfort has crossed over to an addiction that had become unmanageable. Thank you so much for your commitment to recovery, Carol. And Carolyn also writes, On your last episode, Teen Depression and Self-Sabotage, number 348, I heard someone speaking about OA, Overeaters Anonymous. Thank you to this person for sharing and responding. I feel so heard. The podcast community is beautiful. I feel like such a newcomer to Al-Anon. I'm already feeling overwhelmed and too busy to commit to Al-Anon while I try to top off work and family issues. So the thought of starting another program on top of this, even if I need it, feels impossible. I do really want to recover. Right now, I'm just trying to make it to one Al-Anon meeting a week. I often listen on Zoom while doing other things, but haven't been able to carve out the time to sit and be fully present at a home group yet. If anyone has experience with food addiction or OA and would feel comfortable sharing their hope and strength, I would love to hear an episode dedicated to it. I find I'm able to listen to podcasts more easily than attend Zoom meetings at the minute. It is my goal of 2021 to make it to more meetings, though. Thank you so much again, Spencer, and the person who answered. I can only imagine how much time this must take you on making these episodes. Keep well, Caroline. Thank you for writing, Caroline, and uh, I am open to having a conversation about almost any kind of recovery, really. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you're facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.